Hello, have you ever wondered why the school system has dropped the ball on those of us who are neurodivergent and what we can do about it as parents and students alike? Well, my next guest, Kristen Eccleson, and I talk about that and much, much more. So sit back, relax, and grab your favorite beverage, and I'll see you on the other side. See you there. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Inside the Asperger Studios. Today I'm joined with Christine Eccleson and we're going to talk about neurodiversity and education and how the school systems have let kids fall through this loop. Welcome to the show, Kristen. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So why don't you tell us a little, <clears throat> a little bit about yourself and we'll get going. Yeah, sure. So uh, I am officially, hi, I'm Dr. Kristen Eccleston. I am somebody who has been a special education teacher for close to 20 years at this point in time. Um, towards the end of my in-class teaching career, I work specifically with high school students with mental health needs um, an array of other different needs. Some students had neurodiversity, some students um, were dealing strictly with just the mental health aspect, but ultimately were struggling with being able to attend school on a regular basis. And that is what made me want to go back to school to get my doctorate to specifically look at mental health in the education setting. Um, also, I am an a neurodiverse individual. I have ADHD. Uh, so that was something that was meaningful to me to really understand how I could better support students. It's probably why I became a teacher is because I didn't like school so much myself when I was in school. But I have since left the classroom and now I work specifically with families of students who are dealing with mental health issues within the school setting and feeling like the school is not giving them the supports and services that they need to be successful. So in your time, what kind of problems have you seen those who are neurodivergent deal with? I think the biggest thing that students who are neurodivergent that they deal with, I see a lot of mental health come out for students who are neurodiverse. But I think that the main reason behind, at least in the school setting, why there's a lot of mental health issues is that school has really been designed as this one size fits all box. And if you don't fit into this box, then you start to feel like something is wrong with you as an individual that you don't learn right, or you're not capable of doing the things that you're supposed to be doing. And, and I don't think that's true by any means. In fact, I think people who are neurodiverse are incredibly intelligent individuals who probably have the, the key to cure cancer type of intelligence within mm. them, but they are spent with so much time in their young academic life. So kindergarten through high school, receiving these messages, some some kind of subli subliminal, some really in your face from teachers who give them messages like, oh, you're too talkative or, or if you tried harder, you could do this or, you know, all these really negative concepts that makes them feel like, 
oh, maybe there's something wrong with me. Maybe I'm not that smart. Maybe, you know, I, I, I don't learn like everyone else should. And I, I can actually say that from personal experience because that's what I felt like when I was younger. Uh, you know, girls didn't have ADHD when in the 90s and the late 80s. And so we got overlooked and it wasn't even until I was 30 years old that I got diagnosed with ADHD. And so I spent most of my life just thinking maybe there was, I was an oddball or something was weird with me and school, school really stunk for me. I didn't like it. I didn't enjoy going to it. And it wasn't until I got to go to college and I got to focus on things that were of interest to me and things that I enjoyed doing mm -hmm. that I finally started to excel. And this light bulb went off of like, Oh, Maybe I'm actually more capable than I realized. Maybe I can do more than I realized I could do. But it, it was sad that it took me kind of this long time of self-discovery of having to build my confidence back up of who I was and who I was as a learner. And I think that happens with so many students who are neurodiverse is they don't get to leave high school confident in who they are as an individual or who they are as a learner because they now have to overcome all these messages of thinking that something was wrong with them in the way that they learned. Yeah, I kind of understand it. I mean, being someone who is neurodiverse and I kind of got lucky when I was going through school, high school because we became friends with the special education teacher. But I kind of felt like I was almost fell through this, fell through the cracks because schools didn't understand me 100%. I mean, back when I was a kid, we knew nothing about ADHD or ASD. All it was is, oh, he's got a learning disability. Yeah. So where do you think the schools have gone wrong? I think the schools have gone wrong in, in not essentially changing out of what I'm considering this old operating procedure, right? I said a few minutes ago that school is this one-size-fits-all box, and I think that but we have learned so much about the brain since we initially laid down this foundation of what school looked like, which, right, we show up, you sit in these rows, you raise your hands, people talk at you type of learning, right? That was established a long time ago before we knew about how the brain processed information, before we knew about what neurodiversity is and how those individuals are incredibly bright, but they're creative. So not necessarily sitting and talking at them is going to be the best way for neurodiverse individuals to absorb information or to learn. We know these things now, but yet we haven't changed our operating procedures. We haven't really changed what the environment or the setting looks like at school, despite us having this knowledge now that people who are neurodiverse learn differently and, mm -hmm. and they are capable of learning and learning lots of things and learning very quickly and being incredibly creative, but we still haven't broken free out of this old operating system that again, does not serve really the neurodiverse brain within the education setting. So where, how can we help those who have fallen through the cracks? I mean, the school systems aren't ready to tackle the neurodivergence. I mean, it's a huge undertaking to literally say, we're going to pull all our teachers out and start teaching them about, about neurodiversity. I mean, one, what can we, parents do to help their neurodivergent kids? And two, what can schools do in the process? And how can we help the kids that have already fallen? 
That's those are all great questions. I'll start with the kids who I think have already fallen. And I think a lot of those being a lot of young adults who've maybe already graduated from high school. And I think what we can do now is continue to talk about neurodiversity, continue to talk about not just the downsides. I think you see a lot of messages if you watch TikTok where people are making these videos being like, mm-hmm. oh, look at how my ADHD did this to me or my autism did this to me. And this is the but there's a lot of positives too, more than just the negative side. Yeah, I might lose my keys or forget about what I'm saying mid-sentence, but I'm actually really creative. I can do the workload that might take somebody who's neurotypical a week to do. I can do it in a day. Now, do I burn myself out easily? Sure, but I have a lot of gifts that come with being neurodiverse, and so does everybody else who is neurodiverse. So I think we have to talk more about those and start kind of breaking down these walls and these stigmas that people have built up about what does it mean to be neurodiverse? Because this word disorder is in almost all of them, right? Mm -hmm. Autism spectrum disorder, attention deficit disorder, And I think the word disorder has such a negative connotation associated with it that people think of it then as a negative thing. And it's not a negative thing. It's just a different way that the brain works. It's just a different way of the brain processing information. And so we have to keep talking about all the positive things. To me, that's what we can do, at least for some of those people who've fallen through the crack to kind of start building back up that confidence of going, you know what? maybe I am more capable. Maybe I can do these things. Maybe I didn't realize these things about myself, but now that it's being pointed out to me, I'm feeling better. I'm feeling like I can try more things. I'm I'm willing to put myself out there. Then going back into the school system, that's a really complex question. And I'm going to tell you maybe that maybe I'm being naive, but this is kind of my hope. Right now, we are in the middle of an educational crisis. We have a massive teacher shortage that is happening, and I don't see it being any better this school year or maybe next school year. You had this massive amount of teachers who have quit. Um, The schools are going to look crazy, I think, for a little bit, but my hope is in the long run, of this, this will be the opportunity for us to move away from that old operating system that I talked Mm -hmm. about and start moving into a new operating system. And I'm hopeful that that new operating system will be the time for us to start building, um, building formats and learning with neurodiverse individuals in mind. It's crazy, but you would find that most people who are teaching to individuals who are neurodiverse, so allowing more hands-on learning, more interactive or, or project-based type of learning structures, everybody benefits from that. Not just people who are neurodiverse, but people who are neurotypical also benefit from that type of learning. So I'm really hoping that instead of these seeming like accommodations or things that we're doing that are extra, it actually just becomes how we start teaching and how we start teaching all children and what learning starts to become. And so that in the past, when we had to do what seemed like extra things for individuals who are neurodiverse, now it just becomes the standard operating procedure in the education system. Because to me, that will be the best way to kind of make sure that individuals who are neurodiverse are not being left behind. And it'll be a good format for that's how we start teaching teachers starting at the preparatory programs and colleges, that these are the best ideal teaching practices. This is what learning should look like. And to me, that will be the opportunity to start breaking down some of those barriers for students who are neurodiverse all right now 
what can the parents do? I mean, what kind of questions can they ask when they're when they're sending their kids off to school? Because I know there, you have a lot of parents who have neurodivergent children who are scared because they don't know if their kid can handle it. What kind of things can they do? How can they prepare themselves and prepare their kids? I would say right now, if you do have a child who has who's neurodivergent, if you don't have an IEP, an individual education plan, if it's not at that level of support, I would hope get your child at least a 504. And and I hate right now in this operating procedure that it takes these extra types of documents or steps for a child who's neurodivergent to have to get what they need to learn, because I feel like it reinforces that idea that there's something wrong with you. And that's why you need these things. Because mm-hmm. again, I don't think it that there is, but unfortunately you need these documents in order to get the type of uh, educational formatting that is right for your brain, you know, so getting extended time to help ease some of that anxiety, you know, getting an alternative way to demonstrate your knowledge. So maybe you get to do it in a more creative way than how everybody else is doing it. So these types of accommodations, at least in what a, a minimum of 504 can provide you, at least are allowing you to learn or have ways or accessing ways to learn that align with your brain and who you are as a learner. But ultimately, that is what parents should be doing is making sure that their child is having access to these items or these things that are going to help them feel success in the education setting are going to help them feel like they're they're being taught or having access to the right types of services or accommodations that are going to help them in the education setting. So to me, that is the most important thing parents can be doing and talking to your kids and letting them know that their neurodiversity is a gift that, you know, you understand, validate some of the concerns or struggles that they're facing or feelings that they're feeling, validate those, but talk to them about, yeah, this, you know, school's just not set up for who you are, but here are all the amazing gifts that you have. And, and don't forget how creative you are or how talented you are in this particular subject, because most people who are neurodiverse have that one subject that they're usually really, really great at and really play that up and play up the strengths to the child so that they don't get these subliminal messages that something is wrong with who they are as a learner, but really play up how they are unique as a learner. And that's what's really wonderful about them. Now, do you feel that any new teacher coming into to teach either high school, grammar school, or even college level should be before they even get into teaching that they should be taught about the neurodivergence and how to handle them and what to look for. Oh, I absolutely think they should. Um, I think they should be taught about that. I think they should be taught about what mental health looks like. There are a lot of things that I feel like teachers are not being taught that they should be. And I think you will even find that most teachers, if you talk to them, want to be taught some of these things. It's just not part of the preparatory program. And and that's what the issue is. Teachers need to have a, a base basic understanding, what does mental health look like? What does internalizing mental health look like? What are those red flags? What does it mean to be neurodiverse? What is neurodiversity? What does that mean for the brain? What does that mean for how that child likes to learn? I think those are all really important things that somebody who's going to be in the education setting should know because a lot of times 
these are the people who are identifying these students. These are the, the people who spend the most time with these students. And it would be helpful so that this poor child doesn't go years and years before somebody who who is aware or knowledgeable about these things finally goes, oh, wait, hey, I think there might be something going on, or I think this child might need this support or this help. So I think it would be important for colleges to include what does mental health look like? What does neurodiversity look like in their preparatory programs? Absolutely, 100%. Part of the problem is right now, we also need people to join preparatory college programs and become teachers, which has been on the decline for quite a while at this point in time. And I don't think it's going to be um, increasing anytime soon, unfortunately, as well. Now, here's a very interesting question. Um, what do you feel about those teachers who wind up mistreating those students? Do you feel they should be allowed back in the classroom or do you think they should be penalized and just not allowed to teach at all again? That's a really good question. And I feel like, honestly, it has to be looked at on a a case by case basis. Is this a, a person who truly, truly was not knowledgeable and therefore misstepped out of just a lack of knowledge or understanding? Or was this somebody who shouldn't be around children anyways? And this was a level of malicious intent that really broke down this child's psyche. Um, so I feel like you have to kind of examine it on a case by case and, and, and what was kind of the intent behind it. But I think if it's somebody who inintentantly or did not mean to hurt this child or didn't realize how this child needed to learn, once it's been identified, it needs to be brought to their attention. And this this teacher needs the opportunity to learn mm -hmm. what what neurodiversity is and and what that means for that child and how it should look. And they should have that opportunity to learn that and then apply that practice within their teaching. But if it's somebody who is just out to be malicious and is not in the best interest of kids or not what I like to call in the business of kids, then mm -hmm. that's something that's different. And that's something that should be weighed on, you know, was this mistreatment of a child? What kind of damage did you do here? So it really needs to be looked at on a case-by-case -case basis to what the extent or the intention was behind the teacher's actions. Yeah, I mean, because you read stories all over about teachers who get frustrated and just grab the kids and shake them. And it's like, what do we do with someone like that? Do they understand that this person's going through a meltdown or they're struggling or they have severe ADHD and they can't sit down? I mean, it's this, like you said, it's a case by case basis of where were they coming from when they did it? Mm -hmm. But you know what? But I think too, you know, with the example that you gave about like putting your hands on a child and shaking them that's an extreme there like to me that's uh you shouldn't ever put your hands on a child ever and if you're in a position where you feel like you've got you're getting to a point where you feel like that's how you're going to respond to a child that's the time for you as the adult to kind of be like i i need main office i need support you know what i mean like somebody's got to come tap out with me because i'm at a point where i can no longer communicate or be appropriate because my frustration levels and, and that's okay i think some people think that oh i'm an adult i have to have it together i'm not allowed to like reach my breaking point everybody's allowed to reach their breaking point but you have to be adult enough to recognize that you are about to reach your breaking point 
and say, I need somebody to, to tap in. I have to remove myself from the situation before they go forward. Because you're right. If you don't know that this child, um, I have worked with children in the past too. It's really the root cause of why you're seeing the behavior that you're seeing or the frustration that you're seeing. It's not because they have an emotional disability, but it's because they are neurodiverse but the people who are working with them don't understand the nuances of what that means to that child. Mm -hmm. And so they're actually escalating or upsetting the child more by the steps that they're trying to take to interact with this child. And it's actually creating a situation that's worse than, than better. And it's just because the adults didn't know how to appropriately communicate. And then they want to put that onus on the child and at the end it's the child's fault that they're acting the way that they are and it's like no friend like you actually helped contribute to this issue now again if it goes back to like you don't know what you don't know and i'm never ever going to be mad at somebody for you don't know what you don't know but are you essentially having a growth mindset and once it's been brought to your attention that you don't know something are you willing to be big enough to go you're right. I didn't know this. I didn't know this was the best step. I'm going to learn. I'm going to apply it. I, I want to know how to how to be better. Or are you just going to be like, nope, it was this child's fault. It's not, you know, take no ownership into the situation. And that's kind of where I I create that line of mm -hmm. do I work? Do we work with this teacher? This was an honest mistake of not knowing. Or is this uh, a fixed mindset and it, and it's not beneficial to be around children anyways with that type of mindset? Now, how do you help the children that you deal with thrive in their school settings? Sure. So I think a lot of it is I'm fortunate to know how they feel, how they think to some degree, because I myself have been in those shoes. And so the first step I do is if I'm working directly with a student is kind of appealing to that and, and, and really finding that common ground. But most of the time what I'm doing right now when I'm working with families is I am working directly with the family through the school system itself. Mm. And so what I'm doing is I'm educating the school, the teacher group that's working with students. I'm essentially being that that voice of helping you didn't know so now I'm telling you I'm now giving you that information to kind of help you understand how to better work with this child and what the specific needs are that this child is is telling you uh, the example I gave you uh, a minute ago about a child who the school saw it as an emotional disability but it really wasn't an emotional disability it was really the mishandling of this child being neurodiverse and the school not understanding how to specifically work with them, that is something that I get called into and I help and I go to meetings and I help bring those points up to the school uh, so that it kind of takes some of that onus off the parent because I speak what almost feels like a, a foreign language as far <laughs> as, you know, special education lingo and all that goes. I'm able to tell schools, wait a second, this is not actually what's happening here. This is this is not an emotional disability. Yes, you are seeing behaviors. Nobody is denying that. But that is not the be, emotional disability is not the root cause of this. This this child is neurodiverse and they are not being interacted with in a way that's appropriate for what their needs are when they're getting frustrated or when they're getting upset. Um, this, this could be handled differently and then you wouldn't be seeing these behaviors that are popping up. So that's a lot of what, what I do is I help point it out and then I help create, this is what it needs to look like. So these are the supports that need to be put into place. These are the, the accommodations, the services, um, communications, you know, I, I kind of help create that detailed plan of what 
does this child now need in order to avoid some of those happenings continuing in the school setting. So that's a lot of what I do with parents right now and, and with teachers to try to help essentially bridge that gap of not knowing information to now mm -hmm. knowing the information of how to appropriately work with students who are neurodiverse. So do the students, do the parents come with you pre before they, before they put their child into school or do they come to you like during the time, like when they notice that their child is having problems and struggling with the teacher, they come to you and go, listen, my, my child is neurodiverse. I need someone to explain this to the school. Or do they come to you right ahead and say, my child has got X, Y, Z. Can you talk to the school and help them and make matters clear to them? I get a little bit of both. I would say the mass majority of parents that come to me are parents who are already facing a, a stressful situation. Like there's already been some type of boiling point at the school and they're frustrated and they feel like they need that help or guidance from somebody who knows the system. So I would say that's the mass majority of the parents that I work with, but I do occasionally have parents who still come to me and, and are looking to be preventive or proactive. Maybe they've had a negative experience in the past and they're getting ready to move into a school system or they're getting ready to have some kind of transition. And so they know what it could become because they've experienced it in the past and they want to prevent that from happening. So they bring me on early to ask me to help communicate with the school team and or help set things up so that they have this smooth transition transition. So I have experienced most or both of those, but most of the clients that I work with typically are coming to me once there has already been an issue or a concern that's been brought to their attention. Now, have you had any resistance from any of the schools that, that <laughs> Absolutely. I would say that sometimes I have schools who are like, thank you for being here. Like they see me as a, like, I, we, this is your great resource. We didn't know this information. You sharing this with us is this great learning opportunity. So sometimes I'm greeted with that, but there are definitely times where I'm an education consultant advocate, you know, however you want to label it. And they see me as being, I'm here because I'm here to be adversarial, which is not the case. I never come into a situation looking to be adversarial by any means. I'm always looking for how can we work it together as a team to best mm -hmm. serve the students' needs. But I think it's just, I'm seen as, you know, the parents have hired me. I'm an outsider. I must be here to become adversarial. And that is not the case. I feel like I have had wonderful relationships with the schools who are like, yes, thank you. We want to hear your perspective. How can we better be, meet the needs? Because we don't have this knowledge. And that usually ends up being a great partnership. I mean, I still work with the people who see me as adversarial and I try to show them that that's not the purpose of why I'm here. But I think just sometimes it's just in people's natures to think that I'm I'm here to get argumentative and, and that's not the case. You know, I wish we had more people like you because I know in the in the vast world of neurodiversity, there are schools out there who are so backwards, and parents who are so fearful of sending their child to school because the school does not want to help, and the teachers are just so old fashioned they just don't know where to go. Yeah. I mean, I run into that. I see a lot of teachers, especially teachers who are closer to that retirement side, who you do get fixed in your ways, right? You know, who students are today are not who students were 10, 20, 30 years ago. And so 
I have come across teachers who mm-hmm. get very solid that this is how it should be done. This is how students are supposed to behave. This is how students are supposed to learn. This is how I've always taught this class and are not willing to kind of branch out a little bit. But I, I mean, but to be fair, I have seen people who are on the verge of retirement who are very much so about how do I continue to grow? How do I continue to learn? How do I continue to meet the needs of this current generation? But um, I like to call them my rare unicorns because I feel like a lot of people... <laughs> usually get set in their ways. But I think that's common for a lot of people. So I'm not beating up on the teachers who are close to retirement. I think we all get into habits and routines and it's very hard to break habits and routines. But if we're really in the business of kids, we have to kind of put that aside a little bit and recognize when it's time to shift and pivot because we're no longer meeting the needs of this current population. I think I think we think kids are always going to be kids and that, you know, But kids shift and kids learn and we have more neurodiversity and we're more aware of it than we've ever been. So it is time to shift to how we've been teaching and how we've been um, demonstrating learning to children and the messages that we've been getting giving to kids about learning. You know, I think one of the biggest problems is the neurodiversity has become such a big thing in today's time. More and more people are coming out. So-and-so comes out with, I have, he has ASD, she's got ADHD. The schools don't know how to handle it. So they get backlash from families because schools aren't prepared. What do we do? I agree. And and that kind of goes to the, the thought that I had earlier that I'm really hoping that not just because the world is burning in the world of education right now and, you know, we don't have the teachers and we don't have the resources, but I'm really hoping that we are going to start shifting our teaching practices because we're seeing that. I think we're seeing a rise in special education. So at some point we finally have to go we can't continue the way that we have been. It no longer works. And that's mm-hmm. going to be hard. I mean, we've been in this operating procedure, right, for hundreds of years at this point in time, right? So it's going to be a hard shift and a hard sell. People are not going to want to be open to the change that needs to occur in our education setting. But I feel like we are on the cusp of it because it will have to happen. And that's how we are going to start meeting the needs of our neurodiverse students because we are going to have to change how we deliver instruction. It is going to have to be more project-based. It is going to have to be more creative. We're going to have to be more flexible knowing what we know about children's mental health. So trying to reduce that anxiety that school has produced for so long. These are all things that we are going to eventually have to do in order to continue to operate educationally in this country. And those are things that will benefit everybody who is neurodiverse, not just students who are neurotypical as well, too. Everyone will benefit from that type of learning environment. And so, like I said, I'm really positive and and hopeful that that is coming for us. Um, It might not be an overnight thing, but Mm -hmm. I, I know that's what schools need to do in order to really reduce some of the strain and stress that is happening, especially in special education and wanting resources. Because I think if schools realize that parents and students would be so much happier Mm -hmm. if we just shifted the way that we are teaching students and what our operational procedure looks like, they would Mm -hmm. actually... I think reduce some of the stress that we are currently dealing with because you would see better success within our students. And then I think by seeing the success in our students, you would then also have parents kind of like 
take a deep breath, but I'm not putting this on teachers by any means, because a lot of these procedures and things are well beyond teachers. These are things that are coming down from federal and state levels of people who have never set foot in a classroom and are making decisions and telling teachers who know better and who know that this is the way to teach, that they have to teach the way or the things that that they're being told. And, And I think that's also why you've seen a lot of teachers leave is because teachers are tired of having to be told to do these things that we know are not in the best interest of children. Yeah, I feel you there. I mean, I personally believe that government has no right to step their foot in schooling. It should be left to the teachers because they're the ones who were hired to teach the classes and the students, and they know better. They're the ones that are there almost every day of the week teaching these kids. They know what these kids are going through. Government should just stay dealing with the government and school system should be left to teachers. I think we don't give teachers enough professional courtesy. I mean, I have multiple degrees. I know most teachers have multiple degrees now. Well, starting this year, there's a lot of states who are now letting people who don't have any degrees become teachers, which is concerning in itself as a whole different story. But Teachers went to school to become professionals. This is the only profession where people are not allowed to to be professionals and make decisions based on what they know is the right thing to do for students. And, and, and teachers are essentially dictated to what to do and how to do it and what it needs to look like, despite them knowing that that is not what the children need or that is not what the student needs, but their hands are tied. And I've heard people say arguments like, well, they should just leave. Well, guess what? You do have a whole lot of teachers who are leaving now because of it. But I also feel for the ones who stay because there are the ones left holding the bags now and and it's not always easy to just say, well, they should just leave or they should just whatever, because, you know, you still have to feed yourself and pay your bills at the end of the day. Right. And mm-hmm. so just up and leaving your profession and your your stability and your job is not always the easiest thing in the world to do. So I really do feel for all teachers right now, those in the trenches still and those who have recently left. It, I feel like there's a long road ahead for everybody right now. Now. In the terms of hybrid teaching, what we are at now, do you feel it's almost a setback to those who are neurodivergent because of the fact that they're, they have now have to deal with distractions, they have to deal with everything going on at home instead of their focus on the teacher and the class? That's a really great question. You know, I have found that most of the students who had to endure virtual learning who are ADHD did not do well with it. Now, I'm I'm not going to say that that was all students, but I would say the mass majority who have come across my desk uh, and my own child as well, who has ADHD, did not do well with it. It just... Mm -hmm. Uh, You're right. The distractions were there. The, you know, just not that level of engagement, having somebody just talk to you through a screen did not fare well for most students who who are neurodiverse. But there were some there was a handful of students who actually really excelled, especially students who suffer from high anxiety, um, who actually did well with it or who had um, different types of ADHD. My son has ADHD, not in the same way that my daughter does. Um, And he ended up doing really, really well with virtual learning versus my daughter. And so that's why I I don't want to put everybody in that boat. There are some people who just the way that their, their neurodiversity presents or just 
if they're dealing with a level of mental health or anxiety, that virtual learning ended up being really great for them because it took away some of that uh, social or general anxiety that stepping foot into a school building created for them. So I think there is a, a handful of students who actually benefited and did really well with it. But I would say the mass majority of students who were neurodiverse really struggled with that type of learning environment because it didn't have the structure that they really needed to feel successful. Now, being someone who's got ADHD, how do you handle life in general? I mean, I know personally within my ADHD, it's hard because you got your impulses, you've got, you constantly have to be on the go. How do you handle it? Especially with your mind constantly working, how do you deal with all that? That's a really great question. You know, I think a lot of it came from um, going 30 years without being diagnosed. You come up with a lot of coping strategies and you come up with a lot of those coping strategies actually stem from masking. Um, You didn't know that that's what you were doing at the time. But, you know, your attempt to not stand out or seem like something is going on with you. I find that people who are on the spectrum or people who are ADHD are really good at masking it because they don't want people to just be like, what, what is, what are you doing? Like what's going on with you? And so I think a lot of my coping strategies probably stemmed from that. So my day is hard. I burn myself out a lot. I do. Um, it's something that I have to be aware of. Um, I am somebody who I will try and fill every moment of my day if I'm not careful, because I think that I have that time or I should, you know, I should be filling that time. And I'll have moments in my um, with my business where it'll feel slower. And so it'll be like, oh, here's all my time to like add these things onto my plate or, you know, this new venture, this new idea that I have. And then my business picks back up. And now I'm feeling overwhelmed because I've I've started too many projects or, um, you know, I, I tend to also underestimate my time. My, what, what it will take me time-wise to do something. I'll be like, oh yeah, yeah, I can, I'll take care of that today. It'll take me like five minutes. Well, it doesn't really take me five minutes. It takes me like two hours to actually do it. And then I feel overwhelmed because I had like committed myself to a time frame. So I, I know what my limitations are, but I also know what my gifts are too. I, I know that I can be creative. I know that I can problem solve quickly. I know that when I need to, I can become hyper-focused and I can really get something done. And so I, I have to be aware of what kind of my struggles are, but I also need to play up my gifts and and focus on those. And those kind of are my what compensates for some of my struggles. But um, I think the biggest thing is just knowing who you are and where your areas of impact are and where your areas of strength are and, and creating solid coping strategies. Like I have an executive functioning system that works for me. It might not work for everybody, but it works for me. So you have to come up with your own systems that play to your strengths and what you need. Because if it doesn't work for you or you don't like it, especially being someone neurodiverse, you're not going to use it. You're not going to use it at all. And sometimes I even have to switch up what my my structures look like just because I need that excitement or that change because it starts to become too dull and routine for me. And then I don't get excited about it anymore. So it's knowing who you are and what your disability means for you or how it translates out for you. And then being mindful of that and not getting stuck on that as a negative, but just using what you know about yourself to create structures and routine that work for you. Now, how do your kids handle their ADHD? 
So I think for my kids, I think the biggest thing, especially with my daughter, who is more aligned with what my ADHD looked like as uh, when I was her age, is I talk to her about it. And to me, that's a big thing. I, I don't blame my mom or my dad about not knowing I was ADHD. It was like I said, you know, people didn't identify little girls as being ADHD when I was younger. But now that we're we were aware of it. I do talk to my daughter about it. I want her to know what it looks like for her. I want her to know what her strengths are because I think it's really easy for you to beat up on yourself. She used to come home upset all the time that she couldn't get this math thing done in a period of time. They give you like three minutes to do 50 problems. And it really, it would really, I know it would really stress Mm -hmm. her out that she couldn't get on the smarty pants board and and she would be feel so self-defeated over it when she would come home. And so I worked with her to recognize that I was the same way. And who cares about that board? Here's all the things that you can do that I bet you the people who are getting the smarty pants board can't do. And here's mm-hmm. here's the strengths to your, your ADHD. And here's what I finally made sure that she had some extended time for it. And once she did, like the night and day difference that her score was in just having one more extra minute. So I really tried to show her that your brain needs that processing time because your brain is actually doing a lot of work in that given moment. Your brain is probably thinking about way more things than that person who yeah. got the smarty pants is that they're able to just think about one thing and that's why they're able to get it done you are thinking about tons more your brain mm-hmm. is being creative your brain is taking in information it's being analytical it's thinking about all the ways this 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 whole assignment could go how the rest of your day could go so you've mm-hmm. got to give your brain some credit that it's it's working a lot harder than everybody else's brain I mean, I like to think of it as those who have ADHD, our brains are like supercomputers. Mm-hmm. It's constantly going for every single scenario in the world. And then it's you, and then you got to literally go through that yourself mm-hmm. and pick the right one for yourself. I mean, when I first, before I was even diagnosed, I'm, I, my parents knew I had ADHD or they knew I was learning disabled. We didn't know I had ADHD at the time. I went away to the, they sent me away to the University of Oshkosh, Wisconsin. And we had this dinner meeting with former students that were part of the same program. And one of the students goes to me, Reed, I'm going to tell you something. He's like, where it takes a regular student an hour to do their work. It takes you two hours because it takes you one hour to read it and then another hour to process it. Yeah. And then the head of the whole program goes, listen, I'm going to tell you one more thing. He's like, you're going to live with it. You're going to die with it, but you're going to learn. You're going to, between that time, you're going to learn to work with it. Yeah. And I agree with that. And that's one of the biggest things with people like us who have ADHD or even ASD or who are neurodivergent is our minds are constantly working a, a mile a minute, processing everything that comes in. Hence the time, hence the fact that we get burned out a lot more. Yes. Because we don't know how to control that constant spinning of the wheels in our mind that's why i feel and i think you probably know this a lot of people who are neurodivergent have problems sleeping oh yeah i i absolutely agree with that i mean even when i lay my head down at the, on the pillow at night i my brain is still thinking about other things like even if you try to quiet your brain or meditate or any of those things that they suggest my brain is still going like 
okay, well, okay, I'm going to, I'll be quiet. I can be quiet. I can do it. I can, I'll just keep saying the word breathing, breathing, breathing. Okay. I'm going to just breathe, <laughs> I'm gonna breathe. And then the next thing I'm like, oh, okay, well, what am I going to do about my laundry? And you know what I mean? And it's like, even though you have attempted to quiet your brain, um, the closest I can usually come to doing that is I did find, um, that a sensory deprivation tank, which I oh, love wow. doing. Um, I essentially go and float in the dark in salt water for an hour is the closest I can get to shutting off my brain. It kind of lets me slip into that, like between awake and asleep place. Um, and that's, that's the quietest my brain can get. And I actually found that to be a world of difference for me, but I mean, but it takes having to do something as extreme as that yeah, in order scary. to get yeah. my brain to, to, to quiet it down it is constantly thing it's like having a friend who's always with you right like mm-hmm. your brain it's never quiet you're constantly thinking about something that is going on at night and, and unfortunately because of that we tend not to have this early warning system of being burnt out either that's one of the the downsides is you don't necessarily realize you've hit the wall until you've hit the wall, the wall because you're kind of always in that that state of this is going 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 and it's not until all of a sudden you're like I just can't I just can't it's like you hit this paralysis, but you you didn't know you don't know when it's going to come or when it's going to happen. It's just all of a sudden, bam, it hits you. And, and it's either as an adult, it's hard because it's like, I know these are my expectations and I know that the, I can't just not show up to work or I can't just not whatever. When really your brain is like, I want to do nothing today. I need to do nothing. That's why whenever I've gone to a party <clears throat> halfway through, I find a quiet place. Yeah. I get that. My mind quiets down, then I go back. But I've had times where my parents, I'll be at a party and I'll just say, I'm going. And my parents will look at me like, really? Why? And then I'll wind up going right to my room and turning off my lights and closing my eyes because it just gets too much. Oh, absolutely. It does. It's, it's crazy. I will tell people that I consider myself an introvert and they're like, but you're so outgoing and you talk so much. And I'm like, one, you have to start the conversation with me, but yes, once you start talking to me, I won't shut up. I won't because I have all these thoughts and ideas that are constantly going through my head. So I'm happy to talk to you about them. But the whole time I'm like, okay, I'm, I think I'm done talking now. I think I'm ready to be done talking. Like I'm good. I'm good now because I am like, it's exhausting. Like small talk is something that is exhausting to somebody with ADHD, even though when it looks like we're really, really good at it and we're really bubbly and we're really outgoing and we're really (laughs) excited to be here. Like, honestly though, like in the back of my head, the whole time I'm talking to somebody in a situation like that, like at a party, I'm like, okay, when, how can, how can I end this conversation now? Like I'm ready to be done talking. (laughs) It's like one of my guests I was talking to, she had said that while she's at a party, her mind is thinking, I'd rather be home reading a book. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It is. It's it's this crazy contradiction that I like can't describe. And I'm sure most people who are neurodiverse are like, yes, I get it. I totally get it. But it is. It's this crazy contradiction because you come across so extroverted you come across so talkative like you know most of us have uh, this high rate fast speech like i have right and it's just blah 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 blah. let me talk to you i'm going to keep interrupting you because i'm so excited about what we're talking about mainly i'm interrupting you because if i don't i'm going to forget about whatever the idea is that just popped in my head and but but really it's exhaust it's like mentally exhausting you just feel like your battery has gone from 100 to zero at the end of a, an interaction such as that. I mean, 
my ADHD, I mean, I wish I can hold everything I've learned. I literally went to school in England and I learned an advanced topic, but unfortunately my ADHD makes it to the point where anything new I learned just gets everything I learned before gets pushed. Oh, I get that. I get that. I taught myself how to write HTML code one night because I wanted to, I, I decided I needed to make this computer form. Like I had to have this computer <laughs> form that like would auto populate all these different things. So I sat there one night and taught myself how to write HTML code so that I could make this form. And I did it. Could I write HTML code right now? Nope. have no idea how to write HTML code, but I've done it before. I taught myself mm -hmm. how to do it. If I was motivated enough to make want to make something else, I could teach myself again, but I have zero motivation to make anything else with it right now. So my brain's like, we're good. I mean, I, I mean, that's what everyone says is if you don't have the motivation to do it, yeah. you just can't get yourself to do it. And that's why so many neurodiverse students struggle in school. And I think that's why they get teachers who are, you know, if you just tried a little bit harder, because that's the crazy uh, thing. And I think most people who realize who are neurodiverse, like, yes, cognitively, totally 110% capable. Like you have the brain power and the brain functioning to do whatever said task is, right? Like we know that you were that level of smart and you can do it. But if their brain just does not see it as an, an mm. area of interest, then it's just not happening. And I don't have a better sense or better phrasing for that than other than it's just not happening or it's going to be so half-assed because it was like I had to do it for a homework assignment or I had to do it for work. So I did my best. But if I don't have a level of excitement or dopamine that is coming with whatever mm -hmm. task you're asking me to do, it is it is literally like a, it's painful, not like a physical painful, but like a mentally painful experience. I mean, the best way to put it is uh, there's this girl on YouTube. Who's, uh, who does the whole thing on ADHD. I mean, she's really big into it. And she's like, it's because our minds get stimulated. If it's something we enjoy, our minds get stimulate, stimulated and we do it. Yeah. And she's like, that's why we do things at the last minute because it yeah. stimulates us. But the problem is if you, the older you get, it just becomes harder and harder because you, that stimulation just kind of seeps out and you just, you get tired. It does. And it creates like this level of it, it breaks your nervous system to a degree. It almost creates like a level of PTSD in people who have ADHD because you're constantly putting yourself into a state of fight or flight mm -hmm. in order to feel stimulated to get stuff done. That that 11th hour, like everybody, I think, doesn't understand. Like, yeah, we wait till the 11th hour because we have to have that stimulation to get that motivation. But on the flip side, we are very upset and stressed out about, you know, the feelings that we're feeling that we're going to miss this deadline or, you know, we don't have enough time or, and people, well, you should just start it earlier. You should have just planned ahead. Well, you, it's like your brain doesn't let you because by doing it that way, you're not getting the stimulation and you have to wait till you're getting the stimulation to be motivated to do it. But then you're also breaking down your nervous system because now you're in a state of fight or flight because you're upset over the timelines that you have. It, it's a very complex thing that that is very hard to, I think, the rational mind to explain why we do this to ourselves. It's hard. I mean, because I have a friend who 
who's got ASD, ADHD, and a whole bunch of other things. And it's like, I'm like, can't you just teach yourself something? He's like, I just can't do that. I got to be motivated. And I'm like, and you got to find something that find that piques your interest. Yeah. And you got to keep at it and keep doing it because that's your stimulation. Yeah. Because now I kind of understand. I'm I'm trying to get him to learn new things. And he's like, I can't just do that. I need something to motivate me. Yeah. And to get something to motivate someone and inspire someone is hard. It is. Because yep. especially with ADHD and if it's severe ADHD, then that that stimulation needs to be peaked a hell of a lot stronger than someone who's lower on the ADHD spectrum. Absolutely. And I'm glad you, you said that too, because I don't think people talk about, you know, I think you hear autism spectrum a lot. And so you, I think people recognize there's a spectrum there, but there is very much so a spectrum with ADHD as well too. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, there's the high and there's the low. I mean, there are those who are severe ADHD who can't do a lot, because their mind is constantly moving, they need to constantly be stimulated. Mm-hmm. And then there are those who are lower who can't do anything at all because stimulation isn't there and nothing does it. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't until recently I learned that there was ADHD and ma- there was masking in ADHD. Oh, yeah. I like to think of ADHD and kind of ASD as being sister and brother you know, there's so much commonality between the two. There's mm-hmm. like a fine line. Yes, very much so like that. A hundred percent. diagram. Because over- a lot of things overlap each other. And in the whole neurodiversity family, it does, right? There's things that I would say are more cousins, things that are more sibling. But there is like if you think in your mind of this massive Venn diagram that allows everything to kind of overlap a little bit, that is neurodiversity. But I definitely think, you know, if you think of neurodiversity as this family tree, that kind of ASD and, and ADHD are like right next to each other, almost like siblings. And there is this lot of crossover. And yeah. I actually think that a lot of people don't realize that probably what they are experiencing is more ADHD and coupled with maybe a sensory processing disorder or an auditory processing disorder. And we're doing a lot of kind of just saying, oh, it's ASD now. But I actually think that there's a lot more ADHD happening than people maybe realize, but there's also a little bit of sensory or auditory stuff that are going on too. And that's what's making people think, oh, it's just this ASD realm, but it's just so interconnected that I think people need to look at it a little bit more. Like what, what am I actually experiencing so that I really know what, what kind of neurodiversity I have. But I think that's also why I talk about neurodiversity kind of in general, because there is so much overlapping and there is so much of what somebody who has ADHD or who has ASD, they do experience a lot of similarities between what they're going through. I mean, that's why I feel it's just so hard to diagnose nowadays because ADHD and ASD cross over so much. You mm-hmm. get so many traits that are the same in both. It's hard to say to a person, you have this or you have that, yeah. unless you get official diagnosis and they sit there and say, okay, this is what you have because of these because of these test results. Absolutely. I agree. I agree. And I, and I think that's 
why you're seeing, and I don't, I, I have had this conversation and I probably would upset people and it is never my intent to upset anybody. I, I'm, I'm that person who, I think my rejection sensitivity that comes with my ADHD, I'm never looking to upset anybody, but I do think that there are a lot of diagnoses that I don't know that I definitely think the person is neurodiverse, but I don't know that I necessarily agree with the diagnosis that they got because I do think that it's actually one thing coupled with a couple others, but we've just started to just say, okay, this is, we're just going to give everybody the same diagnosis, but it's a little bit more complex than that. It's not just this, it's like we're one size fitting all now, everybody who's neurodiverse. And I don't think that that's the case either. I think that there's some individuality that needs to be looked at for people who are neurodiverse as well. And not to say, oh, you have ASD. And so that, no, like, I think you could have this and you could have this and you could have these separate things that are making it look like it's this thing over here, but you actually in reality have multiple things that are happening. I mean, yeah, that reminds me of a friend of mine. I always thought he'd be on the spectrum of ASD. He goes to get tested for it, and he comes back with, you don't have, the doctor says, you don't have ASD, you have ADHD. But he does have some of, like you said, some of the traits of ASD. Oh, absolutely, because they are, like masking is an ASD and an and, um, a so many letters, ASD and an ADHD thing. But I think for a long time, people thought just masking was ASD, but it wasn't like people who are ADHD, you know, I'm sure my personality and the way I talk, how fast I talk was stuff that like people pointed out to me. And then you think, oh, something's wrong with me. So, okay, I know I need to talk. I know I need to talk slower and I need to make eye contact and I'm making sure I'm making eye contact and I'm talking slower because I know I took that and I know I talk loud. So I'm not doing you know I mean? And so now you have that, that thought going on in the back of your head and that's masking. I mean, that's essentially you were masking. What is your natural way of communicating with somebody? I talk a lot with my hands. So I've had times where I know I need to put my hands in my lap because somebody has pointed <laughs> it out to me doing you know I mean? that is masking, but I don't mm-hmm. consider myself on to have ASD, I consider myself to have ADHD, but I have those things that are also going on with somebody who has ASD. Yeah, I mean, I'm one, and if you listen to a lot of my podcasts, I am totally against masking because in my mind, it's why should we pretend to be somebody we're not just to fit into society, to fit into the workplace and then come home and be totally wiped out from pretending to be something we're not. Completely agree. Completely agree. And I think it, honestly, I think it probably stemmed from a lot of us being bullied when we Mm -hmm. were younger, right? Um, I would probably say that probably most people who are neurodiverse have probably dealt with some type of bullying in some capacity at some point in their life. And those were the times when people kind of pointed out what your nuances were and it didn't feel great to be bullied. So you learned to mask those things probably at a time that you didn't realize that that's what you were doing. Mm -hmm. So now as an adult, it's having to come to these realizations that I was masking who I was. I mean, I'll be completely honest. I feel like as an adult, I woke up several years ago and, and even questioned like, do I even know who I am? Like, am I me or am I a version of me that I thought I needed to be to please everybody else and to, and to meet everybody else's expectations of who I was supposed to be is that, but is that really me? 
And hopefully that makes sense what I'm saying, but I felt like to a degree you mask so much of who you are because of having been bullied or realizing that, okay, maybe this is a weird quirk that I have. And I, I recognize it because I think if you have ASD, ADHD, if you're, you're neurodiverse, I think you're just kind of like hyper aware to way more of what's going on around you than other people are. So I think you start to become aware of even what your own quirks are, even if other people haven't noticed them and you downplay them because you've it becomes a self-defense uh, mechanism because you've mm-hmm. been bullied about other things and you're like well i don't want to be bullied for this too so i'm gonna i'll just cover this up and then you wake up 32 years old one day and you go am i me is this me am mm-hmm. i really me or is this a version of me that i created to essentially protect me and then it's like you are going through this whole cycle of trying to really self-discover who you are and start to learn to be okay with who you actually are versus this version that you created of yourself to be kind of that forward front or forward facing version of yourself yeah i mean i i mean it wasn't until recently i look back at my high school years and i realized what i was doing was masking because i was unpopular i was picked on I pretended to be cool just so I can fit in with everyone else. But yet I still got bullied. I still got extorted for my lunch money. And as an adult, I look back at it and I'm like, why? Why did I pretend who I was? I was comfortable. I was comfortable in my own skin. I shouldn't. I should be happy with who I was back then. I mean, if I knew then what I know now, I wouldn't have done it. Yeah. Same here. I mean, same here. But I think, you know, I think we still didn't enjoy those feelings that other people, even if we were comfortable with who we were as a person, I think we still didn't enjoy those feelings that people would would say to us that would make us feel bad. I also think that generationally, too, we've had parents who very much had this whole like, what will people think? type mm-hmm. of mentality and i think we that coupled with if you you know rejection sensitivity is a is a big thing for people who are neurodiverse coupled with doesn't matter if you have rejection sensitivity or not if people are making fun of you doesn't feel great mm-hmm. and then this whole kind of generational mentality of what will people think of you kind of thing i think really starts to sit like a brick inside of you and that is why even if we were okay with who we were we still masked it because of those other factors, those other heavy factors of, I don't want to be made to feel bad about myself. I don't, you know, I'm being given this messages of what will people think of me? And I think that's why we ultimately ended up masking was because of those factors. You know, a YouTuber once said something that really struck to me. And that is the minute you stop caring about what people think about you is the minute you start living your life. That's true. It is true. And they say that to everyone. I mean, anyone of my friends who has very thin skin, I'm like, listen, you're neurodiverse. And the minute you stop caring about what people think about you and you live your life is the minute you start living it to your fullest. Because it's only it's only you that cares that should care about what you feel about yourself. It comes from the in. It comes from the inside, not the out. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that is it. Thank you so much, Kristen. It has been a very enjoyable show. Absolutely. Yeah, this has been a great conversation. Thanks so much for your time today, Reed. Not a problem. I'll see you in the next one. Sounds great. See you there, everyone. 
miss the way things used to be I'm no big fan of now I must have some sweeter memories Somewhere in the cloud Welcome to the new normal Welcome to the new normal Welcome to the new normal Shout Welcome to the new normal Gonna miss all you used to be huh. Gonna miss all you had Consigned to the dustbins of history Like opinions from your dead Talk to the freaks. You can talk to just about anybody you happen to meet. It ain't what it was, and it is what it is. 